This is Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, your co-host, executive producer, and managing director of Health Innovation Media, curating digital content for the transformational imperative. Joining me in the cutting-edge virtual studio is co-founder and principal co-host Fred Goldstein. Fred also wears the hat of president at Accountable Health, LLC. Pop Health Week is your go-to platform for peer-to-peer conversation with industry leaders, innovators, and ecosystem stakeholders, including payers, providers, patients, vendors, and the regulatory community. We come together to swap the best ideas and strategies in population health management. Connect with us via www.popupstudio.productions or drop me a direct message on Twitter via at gregmastersmph. And that's Greg with two G's. You can reach Fred direct via FS Goldstein or www.accountablehealthllc.com. Today, we're in the company of Hesham Hasabala, a pulmonary and critical care medicine specialist practicing for more than 20 years. We discuss his journey into critical care medicine and explore his recommendations outlined in his most recent publication, how not to kill someone in the ICU. And now let's hand the mic over to the one and only Fred. Thanks so much, Greg and Hesham. Welcome to Pop Health Week. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. It's a pleasure to get you on. Fascinating book, How Not to Kill Someone in the ICU. So before we get into the book, why don't you give our audience a little sense of your background? Uh, Sure. I am uh, Chicago born and raised. um, And I actually went to medical school at the hospital in which I was born, (laughs) Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. I um, graduated with my uh, doctor of medicine in 1999. And then I trained in internal medicine and then pulmonary and critical care medicine, graduating in 2005. And I've been in practice ever since. I've been in the ICU ever since 2002, uh, when I started my training in in the intensive care unit. I've done private practice pulmonary critical care medicine, and then now I've been with my current uh, practice uh, since 2013. I'm a regional director uh, overseeing multiple uh, on-site and telemedicine critical care practices across the country. Uh, I'm an avid writer. I uh, I wrote the book, How Not to Kill Someone in the ICU. I wrote a piece of fiction, Code Blue. Uh, and I also have a podcast myself, uh, Healthcare Musings at healthcaremusings.com. And I just love the practice of medicine, and I also love to write and speak and kind of share my my uh, my uh, experience and and uh, and if I can bring something positive to our field and and to other people, I love to do it. And so, is that sort of the reason why you chose to write this book? Yes, I you know when I have residents and fellows and medical students come to the intensive care unit, I tell them. You know, I, I gave them my top ten rules, and I and and I and I thought, and everyone thought they were very helpful. And I've given lectures about these top ten rules, and so I said, why don't I expand them in a book, um, mm-hmm. where I can expand them and talk about my top, you know, my top eleven, twelve rules in the ICU, and more. And you know, a lot of the books that are out there about ICUs, like physiology and formulas and and chemical formulas and and things that anyone can learn, you can look that up. This is kind of wisdom that i've gleaned over my years in the icu my year you know my experience as a father of a critically ill child who unfortunately passed away uh 14 years ago it'll be um almost 15 years ago this year um kind of just uh, things that i've learned that i that i want to share 
to, to other people who will rotate in the ICU or uh, make their career in the ICU. And then, and then I think, I think others who are not in the field can peer into what we were saying, like listen into the conversation we're having between me and my, you know, my, between my colleagues and, and me. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that they can uh, gain some wisdom as well. And I know it's, it, it's, it's difficult. And it's in the book, you talk about what happened with your daughter and could you briefly discuss that and how that maybe impacted your thinking going forward working in the ICU? Um, sure. My, so I have my, my eldest daughter. She was born in 1996. She, uh, when she was about seven or eight years old, she was diagnosed with uh, ataxia telangiectasia, which is a uh, crippling disorder that affects the cerebellum and rendering uh, those kids uh, unable to walk by the age of 10. And in some of them, and unfortunately, my daughter had the most severe manifestation and also for reasons still unknown, causes immunosuppression. And so she was plagued by infection after infection. And when your immune system is, a pla- is, a, is suppressed, it also puts you at risk for cancer. And so these kids typically develop lymphoproliferative cancers, and she did. She had diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. We fought it. We fought it for six months with a brutal chemotherapy regimen, and because these kids cannot tolerate chemotherapy because of the of the genetic defect, um, uh, she just succumbed to the cumulative toxicity, got an infection, and then passed away from septic shock. So, uh, being a parent uh, in the ICU. Um, you you you're on the other side, right? Uh, you gonna get a sense of what it's like, but and also you understand how families react. I mean, sometimes clinicians, weekly clinicians, the the family doesn't act rational <laughs> to us, right? But we're not in that situation. Well, I was, right? I I am an intensivist. I knew everything. I knew all the medicine, all the critical care that they about which they were speaking, but I didn't see the 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 depths of my daughter's illness until. The morning of. So I understand that, right? And I wanted to share that experience. And now going forward, my being able to tell families, hey, I know where you're going through. I lost my daughter. Um, it really helps cements a bond with them. And it really does help them understand that I really do understand. Uh, and I talk about that in the book. Mm-hmm. And it, I think I, I think by the by the grace of the Lord, we've I've been able to mitigate the suffering of a lot of my patients because they get that this doctor really understands what they're going through. Yeah, uh, so, so I think that, it's been. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I just think that that's been. I think uh, the Lord continues to do good through her death. Yeah, and I think your comments that don't say I understand what you're going through, unless you really have, as you pointed out in the book, and it. In your right. case, you can create that a connection because you have felt the depth of that. And others just may flippantly say, I understand what you're thinking, but they really don't. Right. And 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 that's true. Like, like that's why I say don't I didn't say don't ever say it. I just said be 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 careful. Be right? careful, right. Uh, be careful with the words uh, look, I understand. Because <laughs> do you really? I mean, even a uh, patient with diabetes, right? We get we get them all the time in the intensive care unit with diabetic ketoacidosis, right? Um Diabetes is a very difficult disease. Like um, I have family members with type one diabetes. I see how intensely they have to manage their their own disease. Um, it's 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 easy for someone who doesn't have it, who doesn't suffer from it, just to look at why don't you get your act together, right? 
And <laughs> it's a very difficult disease. And mm -hmm. so we have to, I think we, as clinicians, we really have to be careful um, mm -hmm. when we say, look, look, I understand. Do you, right. do you, do you know what it's like to lose a child? Do you understand what I'm going through? I, I don't know. Yeah, you know? no, it's we, a, just, we just have to be careful. It's a really good point. And another one you made was, and I think back to, as I mentioned, my father was a physician, and he used to say to me, you know, Fred, you're going into this field. You're not a doctor. You're going to deal with MDity for the rest of your life. And <laughs> and you, you, in essence, talk about your ego can be dangerous and trying to control or, or pull that back a little bit when you're in the ER. Can you talk some about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the first, I, I have seen, I can't tell you how many doctors I've seen who have a God complex, right? There was, he was even in Hollywood. Remember with, I think it was Alec Baldwin. He was on the stand and he says, you know, talk about God. I am God. Uh, I've seen many physicians that are like that. When I got accepted to medical school, I honest to, I, honest to God, I prayed to God saying, please do not ever make me think I'm you. Because the Lord suffers no rival. And uh, what it, it would be devastating travesty for me to be so ungrateful for being given the gift and the privilege of being a physician to then have it go to my head. You know, your, your ego, you know, if you, if you just think, well, who are you to talk to me or who are you? I'm the doctor. You're not, you know, that's just so, it can be so dangerous because it can blind you and, 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 and not allow you to see uh truth for what it really is and you know your 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 patient's going to be is going to get harmed so i think that's very it's a very important thing and um it's something that i that i pray i never lose you know that i never use lose humility one of the things about critical care that i love is that it keeps me honest <laughs> you know um there are times that you're i'm it keeps me honest there not every case is the same and uh you know critical illness has uh, humbled me so that's what I love about it, and I, I, I just, I just pray that I, that I never, that it never goes to my head. And it's really fascinating when you think about an ICU. It really is a team approach. Oh, one, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. There's no way that we could have, we could do our jobs without the ICU nurses. It's just, it's impossible. Um, and I witnessed uh, during the the pandemic just their selflessness and their sacrifice and, and and they refused to let patients die alone and they 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 you know i had the luxury of uh, staying outside the room because i had to be around for 17 patients on ventilators they did not have that luxury and i i just you know um i still have survivor's guilt to be honest <laughs> uh seeing what they what, what they went through and my awe just my awe and admiration for them uh increased exponentially um after the pandemic um and the same thing with other specialists and and respiratory therapists they're also critical uh and physical therapists occupational therapists nutritionists chaplains case managers it's a team sport and while yes i may be at the helm um i need everyone uh and i can't do it alone i'm actually a pretty terrible icu nurse <laughs> so <laughs> and i'm very grateful that there are people uh uh that are uh, that that answered the, that that call for those just joining us, we're in the company of Hesham Hasabala, MD, a pulmonary and critical care medicine specialist board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary medicine, critical care medicine, and sleep medicine. We're discussing his book, How Not to Kill Someone in the ICU. 
Stay tuned for the rest of the story. And along those lines, you also made the comment in rule number 10, never cross an ICU nurse. Oh, <laughs> you talked some about that. Oh, yeah, no, no. You, <laughs> I learned that lesson very early. When I was an intern, I, I, I had decided I wanted to become an, a critical care physician. And I, when I was a first-year resident, uh, when I didn't know what I did, what I didn't know. So I came down to the ICU thinking, you know, the world was waiting for me to, uh, you know, uh, arrive on the scene. And I walked in the ICU saying, Pastabal is here, you know, step back. And uh, the ICU nurses um, taught me <laughs> uh, the lesson um, quite, quite, quite quickly uh, that uh, no one's been waiting for you to come down to the ICU. You're going to learn your place. And they did. And they made me they made me a much, a much, a much better doctor. Yeah. And I would point out that while you're quickly explaining the story in the book, the stories are so much more vibrant and better to read through those and and experience it through your experience. You know, that whole issue of don't cross an ICU nurse as well as the others. One of the things I want to thank you for is you put a fascinating statement in here or question as an example I thought was just great. And it was, if your family members stood where I am standing and saw themselves, what would they say as a means to deal with that? Can you discuss that a bit? What I think that question, and I can't take credit for that question. At the same time, that question takes all of the burden of guilt off the family. When you when we come to them and say, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to do everything? I've seen that. The patient is an extremist. They're gasping, literally gasping for breath. And the I've seen the critical care doctors say to the family, do you want me to do everything? What do you expect they're going to say? Of course, I want you to do everything. I want you to save my family member's life. Is that what they want? Would they want to be hooked up to a machine? Do they want to die and spend their last days on a machine? Do they want to be in, uh, in, in a medically induced coma? Do they want to be fed through a tube? You know, and then when they say no, there's natural guilt. They feel guilty because they are, they feel like they're giving up on their family member or they're letting them die or they're or they're or they're killing them right and i saw this during COVID all the time they just cannot bring themselves to do what they know is right for their family member when you ask it in that way if 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 mom or dad were looking at the bedside at their at themselves in the bed what would they say it just they just said they wouldn't want this and the burden of guilt is gone and what I, because I will do everything for my patient within their red lines. I cannot, I don't want to ever cross their, their, their red lines. And when I do, I get very upset because that is, because that is not what they wanted. And so the way to take the burden of guilt off of the family is to, it's not their decision. They're just speaking for their family member. The decision is made by the, by the patient. And so that question is invaluable absolutely invaluable and it helps take that burden of guilt away from the family <laughs> yeah really a, just a great way to phrase that and approach it and you know having all of us at one point or another sort of go through that situation and there's always some dynamics going on and one person has another feeling even if there's a, a dnr or something else on the patient and just being able to phrase it that way just seemed incredibly thoughtful Absolutely. Thank you. And, I, and I, maybe in a second edition, I can talk about, uh, I think we should abandon the term DNR and turn it into A and D, allow natural death. 
because that's what that's really what we're doing, right? Do do not resuscitate. Yes, is technically in order, but what I'm doing is I am allowing them to die naturally rather than unnaturally with us pounding on their chest and striking their heart. That I don't want to die that way. Uh, and I think maybe in a second edition, I can add that, that I think we should abandon the term DNR. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. One of the other areas you touched upon, which can be fraught with difficulties, is religion and bringing religion in within uh, perhaps, as you said, those red line boundaries, et cetera. Can you discuss that a bit? Of course, I think never, 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 and I say that, I can say never uh, ad infinitum, should we impose our religious beliefs or our value system on our patients. And in the intensive care unit, in the critical care, in critical illness, many people, myself included, reach for the divine, reach for spirituality, reach for religion. And I think if we can use that uh, I hate to use it. skill. If we can speak the language of faith, I think it just fosters a better connection with our patients and their families. You know, if they say, you know, we're 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 believers, so am I, right? I'm comfortable in that language space, and it, it helps. It's another avenue to make a connection with a patient and their family. Um, I, I, you know, I've prayed. I've prayed with families. I've prayed for for you know, pay, my, I've prayed for patients who are going to die. And I think that just brings so much comfort to the to, to the family when when appropriate, when appropriate. It's not appropriate for for everyone, you know. I I remember I had a comment uh, when I talked about this on LinkedIn, and someone said, "I'm glad I'm I'm glad you're not my doctor." Well, I mean, if it's not appropriate to you, I will never bring it up. I'm not going to you know I'm not going to bring it up. And when I see that it is important to you, I'm comfortable in that space. Right. It's simple. I think that's where. That's where that's where it's just an added added um, skill. Yeah, and it's similar to your er earlier point about I understand. So when there's the opportunity, exactly. it fits the moment and helps to create that connection. One of the things we've been trying to get to this year is this issue of not my problem or NMP in healthcare. How large of a problem is that? How should we be dealing with that issue? I, I think it's a it's a good it's a very good question. I think it's uh, as a clinician, I, I I wonder how do you define that, right? Um, there, uh, for for instance, in the intensive care unit, I'm not consulted on everyone, right? Now, if I can't just walk, it, I can't I can't just walk by a patient room and just and just put myself on the case. If there's no urgent need, if patient's deteriorating, even if I'm not in the case, I'm there. I'm helping them. That's what code blue, when they call it code blue, I'm going, even though it's not my patient, right? I'm That's my job is to help care for that patient after they've suffered catas catastrophic illness. At the same time, if there's something that I'm not actively involved in, I can't just walk by and say, you know, I think you need a critical care doctor and just impose myself on the on the case. So I wonder if, if that has part of it is part of it it's just it's it, it would be i think we need to define what the problem is to be able to then say you know and then to be able to, to kind of flesh it out further right um I, I i just as a clinician you know um 
and it and it depends on on the situation. Every you know every critically ill patient is my problem. I hate to use that term. Is my concern right in the intensive care unit? There are some people that are just boarding in the ICU that I'm not on their case, so I don't necessarily have to impose myself on them. And I'm always available to help. Mm-hmm. Might if necessary. Might some and if asked. Might some of it be associated with this? Um, okay, here's my function. I'm a PT or I'm an OT, and you have a family that perhaps does or does not understand this, the healthcare situation that well, and that individual says, well, that's not really for me to raise the red flag or to call somebody or to try to help with this. They really need to talk to somebody else, and they sort of, is that potentially some of it? That 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 definitely might be, uh, might be some of it. Um, I don't want to... When I'm asked to comment on a case, um, I don't want to uh, make a comment without having all the facts, right? So if I'm, if I'm, for example, I'm not on a case in the intensive care unit, and then the family member comes up to me and asks me, I have all these questions, but I'm not privy to the information. Privacy, patient privacy laws expressly forbid me to go into even my own charts, like my own chart in the record. I can't do that without permission, right? Or the, the, that of my wife or my daughter, who is of who is of age, after you know, older than eighteen. So, I, I there are some times where I I'm not privy to all the information that I don't want to comment because I don't know everything, right? And then that makes it more difficult for the 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 clinician who is on that case because well, but Dr. Hasabala said one, two, three, four, five, right? That can make it more difficult. So I, uh, that might be that might be part of it. Mm-hmm. Is there, it, is there as an as an individual or patient coming in and you're in the ICU, is there a normal route or a route that should be taken or could be taken to elevate concerns? Is it through the nurse or do you talk to the doctor or where might somebody drive that to get something done? I think you can you can start with the nurse. You can definitely talk to the doctor who's in charge. Of the case, um, there are usually most hospitals have patient advocates. Uh, the uh, nursing manager or the uh, or the manager of the critical care unit is also an avenue. Um, hospital administration and we clinicians don't like it when <laughs> patients' families call the hospital ad- ad- administrators. Uh, at the same time, I think if you really feel that your family member is not being cared for, and I, you know. I might be on the end of that, right? When the when the hospital administrator will come talk to me about it, and it might it could it definitely I'm sure irritates clinicians. At the same time, you know what? This is my family member, and I think I have the right to advocate for them. And I think if we can do it without creating an adversarial relationship, um, that would be ideal. The problem comes is when you don't feel heard as a family member, that becomes an issue. But there's always multiple avenues that you can take. Um, starting with the bedside nurse and the and the doctor in charge, but there are multiple different people in the hospital where you can take your your concerns, and I definitely encourage families to do that at the expense of being having to deal with it uh, as a as a physician myself. You know what I mean? But I think it's so so important. We have to work together. We we really do. So in this case, you know, obviously from a clinical standpoint, there's this quarterback in the 
is in essence in the room, which is the the lead physician with this team of special positions all around them to get that stuff done. Is this an area where you mentioned a patient advocate where perhaps we need something like a quarterback on that role to help communicate with the person? I think I think you yes, I think you like in so in the intensive care unit, uh I am the quarterback, right? I am the captain of the ship. I coordinate the care with all the specialists. Uh, in in concert with the attending physician, other intensive care units, the critical care doctor is the attending physician. So usually either the critical care in the ICU, the critical care doctor is the attending and therefore in charge and the quarterback, or it's the attending physician who is also should be in charge. Many attending physicians will then defer specialty questions to the specialists. Well, well, that's that's up to the cardiologist. That's up to the gastroenterologist. That's up to the intensivist. That's up to the pulmonologist. At the same time, I don't think that um, relieves the attending physician from being that quarterback. Because, you know, when, when my name is on that chart, I am ultimately responsible for everything that the consultants say. And it should be my job to, to coordinate. Now, a lot of attending physicians will defer that to specialists like me. Someone who comes in with a heart attack I may not necessarily be the attending, but if I'm the cardiologist, I'm really coordinating the care. Um, and so that question should be directed to me if it's germane to my what I'm doing. At the same time, I think there should be someone who is uh, uh, aware of everything that can coordinate. And in the ICU, frequently, that is the intensive care physician. Have you thought of taking those 10 rules and saying, as a patient, these are the rules and what you would see to demonstrate that that is in fact occurring and if not how to advocate for yourself yeah i think that's a fantastic idea what do you plan to do next what are you thinking i think i have another uh my next book that i'm gonna be that i'm gonna start to write um and just you know just continue to uh to to help patients at the bedside and then beyond through my leadership and my writing and podcasting well, fantastic. I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's really been great to talk to you. Ash. Oh, th thank you for having me. I really, this is, this has been fantastic and happy to come back uh, whenever you want. And back to you, Greg. And there you have it, folks. That's a wrap on today's broadcast. We want to extend deep appreciation to our worldwide listeners for tuning in and enormous gratitude to pulmonary and critical care medicine specialist Hesham Hasabala for sharing his insights today. You can keep up with Dr. Hasabala's work on Twitter via at H-A-Hasabala, H-A-S-S-A-B-A-L-L-A-M-D, or on LinkedIn or on the web via www.drhassaballa. If you find our Pop Health Week content as engaging as we do, please show your support. Give us a thumbs up on your favorite podcast platform, share it with your colleagues, and do subscribe to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes. Remember, we're live on Healthcare Now Radio weekdays at 5.30 a.m., 1.30 p.m., and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And for our friends on the West Coast, that's 2.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 6.30 p.m. Pacific. From all of us at Pop Health Week, Fred Goldstein, and yours truly, Greg Masters, we urge you to stay safe and stay tuned. Until next time, fare thee well. <laughs>